0: everyone. Welcome to the History of England, episode 268A. This episode is released on the 21st of March 2019, which, if my maths is correct, which it usually isn't, it has to be said, is the 463rd anniversary of the death of a man who I've rather come to both admire and like over the last 18 months or so of writing about the times in which he lived. This is Thomas Cranmer, whose name I think is less remembered now than it once was, but who still very much deserves to be remembered. I appreciate that I'm in danger of sounding just a little bit fanboyish about my guest in today's episode, and I appreciate this is not dignified, but look, who cares? I have thoroughly enjoyed every single work I've read by Professor Diarmuid McCulloch, whether about the commotion time or the Tudor church militant, and the biography of Thomas Cranmer was just fantastic. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not the sort of thing you dash off on a Sunday afternoon after the sports pages, roast beef and all the trimmings, but it is a work of both immense rigour and integrity, and at the same time, wit and a great sense of drama and narrative. I have written a review at thehistoryofengland.co.uk that you might like to look at, or forget all that, just go and buy the thing. Anywho, today we have the conversation that I was privileged to have with Diarmuid about the life of Thomas Cranmer. Just a bit of housekeeping first, this is effectively next Sunday's episode and I have a week off thereafter, so we'll be back to Mary on the 7th of April. I hope you enjoy the interview and I hope that today you will raise a glass or a thought or a prayer to Thomas Cranmer, whichever is your idiom. So welcome everybody. I am very lucky to be invited back to uh, talk to Denwood McCulloch. Thank you very much. Demard. A pleasure to see you again. Um, and the occasion is Thomas Cranmer another figure who I think uh, we share an admiration for, but for whom I feel slightly confused. So I'm hoping you're going to help me. Mm. Um, And I think you wrote what's normally described as the definitive biography about nine years ago or Uh, 1999. uh, Yeah, a long time ago,
1: a quarter of a century ago, but I have revised it, tidied it up a bit uh, three or four
0: years back. Right. Okay. So cast your mind all the way back to when you originally... Of writing what drew you to Thomas Cranmer as a subject well someone someone asked me to do it a right. publisher asked me to
1: do it uh, and uh, I, I needed to I need a book I decided I, I would like to take that opera up it mm. seemed the great thing about doing it was that it gave me the chance to look at all of early Tudor England uh, and at uh, f- mid-stage of my career I guess it was and it tr- certainly proved to be so mm. And I remember reading the great reformation historians to start with. So I read John Stripe and I read Bishop Gilbert Burnett cover to cover. Not sure many people do these days. (laughs) And that gave me a a, a marvelous overview of what everyone thought at Mm. the time. And I have a great respect for Burnett. Mm. So I think most of Burnett's conclusions are are really very good. Uh, and, of course, Burnett was an uninhibited Protestant, right. PI, so he had a sort of vested interest in liking Cranmer. But it, it, it's quite a fair, uh, shrewd picture. So I took it from there, hmm. and that would be in the um, uh, late 80s, early 90s, right. and spent five years working on it. Came out in 1995 to start with. So it was a very big project, and as you know, I've done a, a similar project on Cromwell. And they're, they're sort of bookends, which right. have told me so much about how early Tudor England worked.
0: Mm. So that's how long it takes to write a biography. Is it five years? By and large, or does it get quicker? It so
1: certainly does for a Tudor one, where you've right. got the sources which are huge. Mm. Uh, for, for Cromwell, they're not as large as they are for Thomas Cromwell, but there's mm. a lot of stuff. And so you do have to get around it. Mm.
0: So he, I guess um, Cranmer goes all the way through a very very important period of the, of the uh, Reformation. His views change over time, since you mention uh, Burnett, his the reputation and the historiography of the period has changed a lot. and of Cranmer has changed a lot. Do you think we 've traveled too far in a particular direction? Or where do you think we are in the historical We've had this view well
1: of change. Well, the, the problem was that he was the architect of the Protestant Reformation, mm. and he was also Archbishop of Canterbury. So he had lots of successors as Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Church of England changed Uh, From its reformation persona the sort of church that grandma had wanted to see happen Mm. happened And it was very much a church of the reformed Protestant wing It wasn't even Lutheran and other reformed churches look uh, alarmingly Protestant in tooth and claw For the other side of what happened next in the Church Mm. of England we as a, a Church of England which was embarrassed by the Reformation, yeah. uh, which, some of course, its wing has taken on the name Anglo-Catholic mm. in the Oxford movement of the 19th century. These people did not want the Church of England to be Protestant. The yeah. trouble was that it had been, yeah. and Cranmer was at the centre of it. He'd also left it uh, a liturgy, a Book of Common Prayer, which was still the liturgy of the Church of England. It was the way everyone worshipped who, uh, who uh, were in the Church of mm. England. And so the the Oxford movement and the Anglo-Catholics were stuck with this prayer book, which contained lots of things they didn't actually like very much. And they spent a huge amount of 19th century intellectual energy proving that Cranmer was not who he was. Right. So we've got this picture of Cranmer as the the moderate mediator between a, a, a violent reformation and something more reasonable and also going back to the medieval church. And you get the most extraordinary distortions of the man in 19th century Mm. history. In the 20th century, the sort of people who were then interested in him tended to be much more secular. So they regarded him often as the agent of Henry VIII and the agent of Edward VI, Mm. instead of an independent player whose ideas were changing furiously during his life. That's what makes him confusing. So what I tried to do was to get back to the Cranmer he would recognize as much as one can Mm -hmm. and that's uh, a protestant red in tooth and claw Uh, and i I did something uh, visually in in a sleight of hand on this because when i chose the dust jacket i didn't go for the picture which was absolutely standard up to the 1960s 70s uh and had been used, for instance, on um, Pollard's mm-hmm. biography, A.F. Pollard's biography in the 20th century, still being used later on. Now, I went for another portrait, which is mm-hmm. in Lambeth Palace, and in, in contrast to smooth, chin, thoughtful-looking Cranmer in his picture of 1545-6, uh, this is a Cranmer with a big, bushy yes. beard. Yeah. This is Cranmer in the reign of Edward the Sixth. And that seems to me to be a much better image of the man than the earlier picture, which had been painted in that uh, very tense period, the last years of Henry VIII, when things were swaying either way. And Cranmer was trying to create uh, a particular image which would not be that of Cranmer under Edward VI.
0: That's interesting, because I was going to ask you about that, because... um, it's got to be the smooth-chinned crammer for me. It always looks a bit more grim, uh, <laughs> which i mean, is probably the opposite. Because I understand the beard thing is around um, a protest against the traditional religion. And the longer the beard, yeah, the more Protestant you is were. Is that right? You are? but it has to say he looks le- less red and tooth and claw to my eye than uh, in the beardy one than he does in the smooth one. But perhaps I'm, he'd mellowed with the years. Maybe that's it. Yes, yes. or maybe it's my own bit Father Christmas. Bit Father Christmas, that's it. So I'm um, going backwards then. What do we know about Cranmer's married life? Because of course he gives his wife something of a a checkered history in a sense. Well, he, he was a man who liked marriage because he married twice. Yeah. He married twice. He, he
1: married as uh, a young Cambridge scholar, which shows you that he really did like marriage because this was a bar to a career at the time. Right. Uh, getting married meant that he couldn't proceed to the priesthood, and he only proceeded because. Uh, the wife died in childbirth, as as did the child. So that first marriage, we we know very little about. Mm. But then the second marriage is tremendously interesting, and and is part of his intellectual religious journey because, when on embassy for King Henry VIII uh, in the matter of getting rid of Queen Catherine of Aragon, by some. Diplomatic means mm. he found himself in the Holy Roman Empire, found himself in Nuremberg, which was a, already a great Lutheran city. It had rebelled against the old church, and this is probably the first time that Cranmer had met such a, an open institutional right. form of protestantism mm. and He did something quite remarkable in Nuremberg. He married he married the niece of the leading Lutheran pastor of the city, a man called Andreas. Oziander. So doing that, which is it's 1532, he's really saying something quite bold. Mm. He's saying, I no longer care about the old church's prohibition mm. of clerical marriage. And he wasn't taking a mistress, which many senior clergy did at the time. He was make, marrying a wife. Mm. So this is a, this is a very overt considered thing to do. And we don't quite know where they got married, I suspect in Osiander's huge parish church, which you can still visit in Nuremberg, St. Lawrence, wonderful, Mm. beautiful buildings. But who knows? Anyway, by the time Mm. that he left Nuremberg, he was a married man, Uh, he married Margareta. We don't know her surname because all all we know, she's a niece of this pastor Osiander. We never, so we never have found it out. Mm. Uh, And what happened to Margareta after that is is also a bit puzzling. I don't think she came to England for a while, though she certainly was here eight years later when she had to be sent back to Germany because Henry VIII was cracking down on married clergy. Uh, And they had children probably only in the reign of Edward VI. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, Surviving kids uh, were a boy and two girls' who, it has to be said, never came to much. Right. And I suppose the trauma of what had happened to their father might have accounted mm. for that. So, yeah, Margareta yeah. is part of the story, hugely important mm. part. There was a room at one stage that she was kept in a box or something. I got <laughs> yeah. that wrong? <laughs> this was a Catholic canard, ah, I think. Okay. Uh, there, it, it's a complicated story, but there was a fire in Cranmer's Palace in Canterbury at which he showed very great solicitude for a box oh, right, so. and had had it rescued. I suspect it, it carried papers about the crisis, political crisis he was in yeah. at the time. Yeah. But someone clearly in a joke said, well, must be his wife in there, <laughs> take all that care over it. And the Catholics picked that up. Right. So no, I don't think the box mm. is true. But her career after that is remarkable because after his death, when she was effectively a non-person uh, with two three kids Mm. to look after she first married Cranmer's publisher and then married Cranmer's publisher's friend Hmm. and at one stage it's bizarre she she gets involved in curious menage artois at that stage with two people and her in the same household and we, we know this because there are lawsuits about property so, uh, what Whatman makes of all that, I don't know. Right. But she was a lady who much experienced
0: marriage. Yeah. And had a, a rather torrid life. Absolutely, yeah. It'd be nice to know more about right it. Yes, I mm-hmm. No problems. Uh, there's a tradition, then, that Kramer was radicalised at uh, Little Germany, or what, the White Tavern, is it, in, uh, the, in the White Cambridge, Horse Tavern, white horse yeah. Then,
1: yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably not. Right. Uh, this all comes from one reference in John Fox's great book, okay. Backs and Monuments, to Little Germany, or Germany, as he calls it, Little comes from somewhere else right. uh, and he, he lists one or two people who went there mm. but Cranmer was not among them. Okay. So it, it's become one of those sort of foundation <coughs> legends I think mm. for Cambridge uh, self esteem but also for Protestant origins uh, no it's most unlikely that he had anything to do with it because in his Cambridge years he seems to have been a, a religious conservative. Okay. This came as a surprise to me yeah. uh, but there it was I found one of his books in the British Library Mm -hmm. and it was a book owned by him, bought by him in Cambridge clearly in the 1520s it's a book by John Fisher against Martin Luther and in it are Cranmer's Marginalia his personal comments and You'd expect them, wouldn't you, to be on the side of Luther, but they're not. They're on the side of Fisher, And he says terrible things about Luther. He says he's wicked and mad Mm. for destroying the church's unity. So that's Cranmer in the very years that he ought to have Mm. been sitting in little Germany, the white horse, with Protestants. No, he wasn't. He was a conservative, conventional don who, interestingly, did not go to Oxford, along with many of the young Protestants who... Cromwell recruited for the Cardinal's College there. Cranmer, it says in Fox, refused to go. Right. So there we there we are. I think it's game set
0: and match. Right. So how does he then? How does? How did he become a reformer then? What What was his route then? Well, it seems to me that it was actually
1: doing the thinking for the king's separation from his first wife, because that involved saying that the previous pope had not had the right to grant are uh, um, the conditions for the marriage to have taken place. And once you start thinking along those lines, you think, well, who does have authority in the church? Uh, and the next person along is the king. And Cranmer was looking at sources which we know now were completely spurious, medieval English history, making English kings, much, uh, bigging them up much more mm. than they ought to have. Uh, but for him, this probably was conclusive, that the king was the author- source of God's authority in the church, not not the Pope. Uh, and so it, it, it seems strange now, but it does look as if it's the, the matter of Henry VIII's marriages, Catherine and Anne Boleyn, which really did persuade Cranmer that
0: the Pope was a, a liar. And one of the questions I always thought seems to hang over Cranmer is, uh, is a question of honesty. I mean, I'm not sure I'm being mm. fair there, but... Um, there's almost a suggestion that, well, he convinced himself because this is a route to power and influence and he kind of did the king's work. Mm. But your feeling was that this is a a genuine belief.
1: Oh, I I think so, uh, because of the vehemence with which he ended up as a Protestant. Mm. And and it's a complicated route through. Mm. And he's clearly a thoughtful man who didn't come to decisions quickly. And there are confusions and what you might call hypocrisies on the route. For instance, his only... Known parish ministry in inverted commas was uh, a very rich parish in Breeden in Worcestershire, which was given him by an Italian cardinal, okay. while Cranmer was on embassy in Rome. And you know that 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 doesn't look very Protestant. No, it doesn't look great, does it? Uh, and it's at the same time that he's doing all this thinking for the king. I just think people were confused and and didn't know where things are going to go. You know, one thinks of Brexit, uh, <laughs> big big things that you can't quite see the whole shape yeah. of. But you know you want you want to go in one direction. Mm. So I think we're seeing that sort of confusion. Mm. And there is no doubt that once he had made his mind up, uh, uh, by which time he was Archbishop of Canterbury, he was consistently pushing for reformation Right.
0: in Henry VIII's very ambiguous church. He was pushing further than mm. the king wanted. And yet he changes, doesn't he? Or as far as I can see, he's not... And uh, people pick up on this, don't they? It becomes a weakness later, as far as I can see, that actually he continues to change, and, yes. and that causes a problem for him. Well, yes, I'm doubting Thomas Cranmer, he's
1: being called, oh, right, after okay. doubting Thomas the right. Apostle, and it's, it's an, you can see why. Uh, the, he does change, uh, and the changes have started with him ceasing to be that very conventional Cambridge don, very traditionalist through to something that looks a bit more like Lutheran Protestantism under Henry, mm. through to something much more thoroughgoing and, and reformed mm. in the reign of Edward. So those are changes. Mm. And he admitted it at his trial that he changed on, on very basic things like, what does the Eucharist mean? That that He, he said, I have had two beliefs on that.
0: Mm. So he does seem to be a, quite a self-aware man. I was drawn to one of your quotes, actually, that um, it's after the... The Act of Six Articles, obviously, very traditionalist, mm. and I think he's writing a letter to somebody who is going to going to leave England and going to go to the continent because he can't mm. put up with it. And he writes, "So you must make haste to escape before the island may be cut off, unless you are willing to sign the decree as I have done, compelled by fear, for I repent of what I have done, and if I had known that my only punishment would have been deposition from the Archbishopric, I would not have subscribed." Mm. So he's kind of self-loathing almost about what he's done there is a terrible honesty there isn't Mm. there and
1: I think throughout his career people played on that particularly in the psychological destruction of him under Mary
0: and I think that's that's one of the things why I find him an interesting and attractive character that there is that self-awareness around him Mm. but why I find it confusing because um, as well I mean I'm leaping forward but if I take you to the affair of Joan Boucher, mm. um, there's a very different Cranmer that emerges from that affair than an image you might pick up of a rather kindly self-doubting man. Yes, and, and that has got
1: lost over the years mm. because uh, he's been recast as a sort of gentle Anglican parson. Mm. No, there is, there is a, a, a very hard edge side to him, and, and it is a theological edge, so You can see the people he hated. He hated, on one side, the Franciscan observant friars because he saw them as the the shock troops of the Pope, the agents of Antichrist, therefore. But he was equally, equally implacable against very radical... Uh, Protestants one might well they're not even Protestants they're beyond Protestants so mm. you, you mentioned Joan well she had denied the Trinity mm. she was in other words what contemporaries would abusively call an Anabaptist right. because of another belief uh, in, um, in, in um, adult baptism mm. and, and those sort of things he, he abhorred because he regarded them as corrupting truth mm. uh, and so the punishment for that would be death right
0: and I think Edward the tries to argue him out of it, doesn't he? It's still young, so. It's but- said
1: by, by by John Fox, oh, okay, yes, right. it's, and and that's possible, yeah, because right. yeah. Fox himself hated the Fox, whole. Fox yeah. hated persecution. Yeah. One of the very rare people who mm. thought it was a very bad idea to burn people. Mm. Not many people in the 16th
0: century. No, would indeed, be along yes. with that yes mm. um, okay so sorry I've, I've let forward but um, so he receives uh, the pallium from the Pope and I think he's the last Archbishop to do so or is that yeah, yeah well or uh, he, he, of course Cardinal Poole would yeah. also do so but the last
1: Archbishop in of a Protestant nature and mm. that that's, yeah, is hypocritical it's mm. a fix uh, the pallium was a symbol of obedience to Rome mm. and the next thing he did I mean literally mm. the next thing was to repudiate that obedience in mm. the ceremony
0: so not a good moment Hmm. So there's a, there's a period in, in the 40s, aren't there, where Henry VIII is still king, but there's a, this prebenderous plot where he comes very close to, to losing his grip on, um, well, his life, probably. Yeah. What does that tell us about Cranmer and his relationship with Henry? Well, it shows how... Evenly balanced things were
1: in the 1540s after Thomas Cromwell's execution. Mm. Uh, things could have swayed either way, and with the, the things were also getting pretty murderous. The people who destroyed Thomas Cromwell wanted to play the do the same trick again on grandma mm. and it's this very same sort of uh, setting up accusations, tr- getting the king to agree to an arrest. Uh, And the next step must be making sure that the victim never sees the king again. The trouble was it worked with Cromwell, who was in the tower, Mm. never saw the king again after his arrest, but it didn't work with Cranmer, who, as luck would have it, had a secretary whose brother was in the king's private apartments, the privy chamber, and the brother tipped off Cranmer's secretary. Cranmer's secretary tipped off his boss, who then could promptly row be rowed across in his barge from Lambeth to the privy stair in Whitehall go up the privy stair because he was recognised right. and then see the king personally and so that was the vital difference oh, he looked the king in the eye and presumably said you, you surely cannot do this to me and and Henry a real coward actually particularly mm. when you looked at him straight in the eye said oh, no 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 okay right. and gave him the ring mm. a ring a royal ring Uh, And that's what Cranmer could simply give and show to people who were going to arrest him the following day. So the story turned out differently, but it's the same team on either side. It's it's anti-Cromwellians, anti-Reformation people
0: against this embattled group of what I would call evangelicals at court so you have this lovely scene don't you where he's accused in the council chamber and he produces this ring which must have been a fist pump occasion (laughs) (laughs) he must have gone back and you know oh what a great moment yeah absolutely yeah so um, and I reflect that he was on the council I guess for about 20 years or so wasn't he I kind of feel I know how I would have reacted to Cromwell had I met him. Mm. I find it very difficult to visualize how people would have reacted to Cranmer in that political situation on the King's Council. How do you think Stephen Gardiner reacted to him, for example? Well, Gardiner and Cranmer were clearly enemies for their public
1: careers. I think they'd been mates at right. Cambridge. Um, so there's a genuine ideological rift between them, but also the fact that Gardiner knew painfully that he could have been Archbishop of Canterbury. And was expecting, I think, to mm. be Archbishop. He'd abandoned Wolsey, set himself up near Queen Anne, and under the king's mm. uh powers, secretary to the king, all that said Archbishop of Canterbury. Didn't get it. So resentment there but also increasing ideological, theological horror mm. at Cranmer, and that there was ne- there was never reconciliation yeah. there. So was he an effective politician, Cranmer? No, I think to start with not at all, and didn't need to be because of Thomas Cromwell. They had a slightly rocky start in that Cromwell was very much Anne Boleyn's uh, sidekick. Mm. Cromwell, as I've argued, was really her enemy. But they came together and clearly worked together, and in terms of getting the Reformation forward, Cromwell could be the hatchet man. Mm. So it's really when Cromwell fell that Cranmer started having to be a politician. Mm. You know, by the reign of Edward VI, clearly he's quite a hard-nosed politician, okay. as well as being you know, a churchman and liturgist, etc. So
0: he learns, mm. you think? Had he had to learn the, the hard way, I think, yeah. and
1: particularly yeah. the Prebendary's plot you've mentioned. And yeah.
0: uh, This is this facing him with, with destruction, mm. and he got through it. Yeah. We come to Edward VI's reign, and uh, in a sense he's off the leash. What religious life did Cranmer want for... The country. He wanted something like one of the great
1: reformed Protestant cities of Europe. Strasbourg would be probably his ideal because okay. he was a, a great friend of Martin Buzza, the mm. great reformer there. Uh, so that would be the model for a kingdom. And the, the, mm. the, the problem is how do you tr- transfer a relatively small, circumscribed reformation like Strasbourg's onto the stage of an entire kingdom? And mm. that was the problem under Edward VI. It's huge. And you have to move very carefully. And the problem was also, for instance, in Parliament, that actually probably a majority of his colleagues loathed what he was mm. up to among the bishops in the House of Lords. Uh, there are the secular peers who might be traditionalist. House of Commons you've got to deal with. So that's why the, mm. the reign of Edward VI and the, the progress towards the Reformation is is step by step relatively slow and then there's a lurch in the middle which had more to do with having destroyed the balance in the house of lords right from traditionalists to evangelicals that's the moment they could really let the leash off and all the time cranmer is behind this forward movement he's not holding it back in
0: any way at all and so you get you get this slightly strange period where you have sort of these public pronouncements which are all very reassuring traditionalists, and then meanwhile you have i don 't know the visitations going on which are quite radically changing the way churches look yeah. um, is this is this political? Did he know where he wanted to go? Or is it he achieving what he can achieve at each particular moment? Or did he have a clear vision? I've no, I've,
1: I've no doubt at all that he knew where he wanted to go. Right. And he was pressing forward all the time. It's stage by stage by stage. And what's impressive to me is the fact that the trajectory of it, the, the movement towards reformation, it's, it's a smooth line through the great political hiatus of the reign, which is the fall of the Duke of Somerset. Right and his replacement by Warwick, the Duke of Northumberland. Uh, The the, the religious um, trajectory forward is a straight line. There's Mm. no sense of break there. And the one person who's around all that time through that crisis was Cranmer. Right.
0: I think somewhere else I've read that, I mean, unlike many people, his argument doesn't seem to have been about the wealth of the church or its materialism, but very much about its theology. Mm. What did he think was
1: important? Well, he had no time for monasteries or friaries, Mm -hmm. absolutely none. He wasn't that enthusiastic about cathedrals. Right. Uh, the, the sort of use of his prayer book with choirs and organs and the, the, with, in evensong, he wouldn't understand what's happened to that. Okay. So the, what, the life which mattered to him was the life of the parish, the ordinary congregation and its minister and the preaching of the word within that. It's, it's a much narrower vision, frankly, than mm. that of the medieval church. It's, it's one route to God only, mm. without all the glorious variety of medieval spirituality. Mm. Um, and, but it very much reflects what was happening in Reformed Protestant Europe generally. It's, it's, it's so similar mm. to the sort of picture you get out of the uh, church of Strasbourg, Zürich, mm. any of the big cities of Central Europe.
0: That's one of the things that came across in the book, actually, that we t- I tend to think of Kramer as a very English figure. Yeah. But, of course, he was quite international as yes, well. Yes,
1: absolutely. Uh, uh, he'd, he'd experienced mainland Europe and was a huge enthusiast for contacts with it and, and drew refugees here when they needed to find a refuge under Edward VI. Uh, he kept agents abroad mm-hmm. um, informing him what was going on, I think, Cromwell had started that, but he he had his own contacts, and that went on. had a young Polish gentleman in his household for mm-hmm. fifty thirties and forties. So he, th- there are all sorts of ways in which he's emphatically not English, and that's mm-hmm. another myth about him that mm-hmm. he creates an English sort of Reformation. No, 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 it's a it's an international sort of Reformation.
0: So we come in fifteen forty nine and fifteen fifty two to the books of common prayer, which are you know to his most lasting achievements, I mm. guess. Yeah. Talking about those and uh, and why they're seen as such great achievements mm. he what grammar had been wanting a liturgy in English since the
1: thirties, and he put schemes up when it looked as if it might happen even fifteen thirty eight nothing much happened uh, a, a litany that's a sort of, that's a ceremonial procession for prayers that was put in English in a crisis uh in the war with france but fifteen forty nine things that the he, he's got his chess pieces lined up now and it's possible to push that through. There was a, a tryout with a little bit of English in the mass, 1548, then that's incorporated in a new prayer book, 49, uh, which was clearly a shock to the nation. Mm. Just hearing the whole of the liturgy in English was a shock and right. it, it, it provoked rebellion, specifically about the prayer book in 49 in the West Country. But it's still a compromise. Mm. And and that's because he simply could not have got anything else through the House of Lords. It's as simple as that. Uh, But with the political crisis of 1549, certain bishops being put in the Tower of London, others being dismissed, the balance shifted Mm -hmm. by 1552. He got what he wanted. And so 1552 represents at least one big stage on Cranmer's achieving what he wanted it, it's still quite an elaborate liturgy by mainland Europe's reform standards uh, but it's lost a lot of the compromises of 1549. Mm. 49 is, is, is a very temporary book no yeah. one liked it mm. and it's interesting the place that it then assumed in high church Anglican Uh, Historiography, understanding of history afterwards, as early as the seventeenth century, High Church Anglicans were looking to the 1549 book to justify their theology, which was simply not compatible with 1552. So it it, 49 assumed a character after the event which it it really didn't have in Cranmer's thinking. Uh, As far as he was going, he junked it. Mm. He junked
0: it, and the 52 book was the next stage on. So do you think that was, for him, was it? I mean, one of my questions I was going to ask is, at the end of Edward VI's reign, does he look back and think, you know, comes canon law, but theologically, that he's done what he wants to do? No,
1: I don't, I don't. Uh, There is the story preserved by, uh, admittedly, what would be called Puritans later, that he he had uh, thought of a a prayer book a hundred times, better than this one Uh, had is the interesting thing there i think that means would have in our idiom Mm. and that probably represents his thinking that 52 that's okay but we could do better we could Mm. move on things had moved on in the very last year of edward you can see cathedrals dismantling their organs for instance and that's a sign that change had was not going to stop carrying
0: on right but one of his failures i guess is he has a scheme for also reforming canon law, yeah. and that doesn't happen. Why, where does that go wrong? Well, uh, this
1: had been his cherished scheme, and it had been Henry VIII's scheme too, that back in the 30s they'd started a, a complete rehaul of canon law, and you see why, because canon law is the Pope's law. So you want something which isn't the Pope's law, uh, and, and the, the scheme which came to fruition in 1552 called, was later called the Reformation of Laws, Reformatio Legum, but it's an entire... Scheme of reconstructing canon law on reformed Protestant lines. Uh, It does rather treat the whole of England like a vast reformed city, as if it were Strasbourg. But, of course, it was defeated, as you say. It was defeated, as far as we can see, as an act of malice by the secular politicians, the Duke of Northumberland, John Dudley in particular, because in the winter of 1552, uh, a real row had developed between the church leadership and the secular leadership both in government Mm. but the churchmen thinking that the reformation was turning into simple stripping of church assets Mm. that these things were not being used well they were simply being uh, given out to the self-interested and a, a campaign of preaching broke out John Dudley I think very very cross about that and simply stepped in and the Lord said, we're not going to discuss
0: this canon law thing anymore. And it never came back. Right. It never came back. And was that, why was that significant? What, uh, what impact did that have, if anything? Because you need know discipline for a Reformed
1: <clears throat> church. I mean, the, the, the marks of the church, uh, where the sacraments are rightly ministered, <clears throat> the gospel rightly preached, and discipline. Uh, most Reformed Protestants would think these three were marks of the church. And discipline, is, you know, it's one leg of a, a tripod. <clears throat> And if you lose that, then your reformation is impaired. So this is really, really very important. And I think a row would have gone on if the young king had not died
0: so soon right. afterwards. Some of the anti-papal rhetoric feel very foreign to modern ears. You know, mm. It's very um, extreme, isn't it? Yeah. And I was reading about a chap called John Ponnet. It, yes. Mm. And about his developing theory of resistance to tyranny. Mm. That... It's not something that Cranmer would have signed up to, or is it? No, certainly not. Ponet was actually his chaplain. Oh, okay. A very, very
1: clever man who had never fulfilled his promise, died early. Uh, But I think in that respect, I very much doubt Cranmer would have have approved. But, of course, he's a political operator, too, and he had been involved uh, in trying to alter the succession. I mean, every side in a very polarised age did end up saying it is okay to... uh, get rid of monarchs right. who don't agree with us. Mm. So French Catholics get got to that position too, got to the position of saying, you should, you can assassinate monarchs you don't agree with. Right. So Pony is only part of the wider picture.
0: Mm. But for Cranmer, the primacy of the prince, as it were, was very central to his... Tremendously central. And that, of
1: course, brought him into tremendous problems when the monarch was not the one he wanted, Queen Jane, but Queen Mary... Mm. Uh, returning the church to Rome. What do you do if you've said mm. that uh, uh, everything depends, depends on obedience to the monarch and the monarch then you know, takes you back to Rome? What are you have to do? Uh, it, it's a huge psychological, theological problem for him.
0: So when Mary does come to Australia, does he not realise that he is effectively toast? Does he harbour any hope that he might survive? I don't think he did. But for for once, he decided to stay
1: at Lambeth. So why did he do that? Why didn't he run? (sighs) Who knows? Who Hmm. knows? Every senior churchman in Edwards Church had to make that decision. And some fled abroad and some didn't. I think he felt that he was in a particular position to support those who stayed and perhaps see where the Queen was going, who would know because Mm. her first noises were quite Mm. tolerant, quite considering, conciliatory. But uh, clearly the hollowness of those soon emerged as the hollowness of Edward's promises to conservatives had become apparent. But hers is far more thoroughgoing and and with an element of understandable revenge On, particularly on the man who had pronounced the annulment of her mother's marriage and then betrayed her
0: by supporting Queen Jane. She kind of, um, I mean, the out i rightly wrong, is that she does kind of pursue Cranmer, but takes quite a while to do it. Yes, uh, there's a very curious
1: phony war all through the latter, latter part of the summer mm. of fifty three. where he's in his palace he's uh, you know, doing business, there it is in the archive and, and you feel what a what a bizarre, weird time that must have been you know, the Book of Common Prayer was still legal mm-hmm. though parishes were abandoning it all over England for the old Mass so uh, it, it came to the crisis in early September where the rumour went round that he was accepting the Mass really? and at that point he put out a very bold, clear, black and white statement right. I am not Mm-hmm. And that was the excuse for the Queen to arrest him. You almost feel that both sides said, OK, right, now's the time. Right. We've got to sort this out. Mm-hmm. Parliament was about to meet. Mm-hmm. And how could he possibly have sat in Parliament? Yeah. So early September, he was in prison and in prison from
0: then on. So there are some occasions, are there not, in his in Cramer's life where you can specifically point to, uh, to refute the idea that this is, that he was a a trimmer who uh, lacked courage, at the, he supports Anne Boleyn or tries to persuade the king. Yep. he supports Cromwell I believe, yep. doesn't he yep. um, and this occasion where he stays when he could have run surely they point to uh, a strong brand of integrity in the man.
1: I do, I, but it is confusing mm. and, and, and that's one of the reasons I liked him because he's not consistent, mm. there is heroism there and it's heroism particularly when he's really uh, with his yeah. back to the wall and that seems to me psychologically much more interesting than the black and white
0: yes. heroes and martyrs Absolutely. which the Reformation loved. Well, there are of course no black and white heroes in life, father, but which <laughs> is why, again, I like because, yeah. uh, yes, you've got that bit of self—that self-loathing quote that I got. There's very mm-hmm. that self-awareness, that uncertainty, and yet, you know, when it comes down to it, he did make himself do things that others around him wouldn't. Yes, quite mm-hmm. exactly. So. He's kind of pursued by both Paul and Mary. And that you pronounced it Paul. Paul, yes, we know it's
1: pronounced Paul. Right, there's a good of Protestant malicious jokes about that stinking Paul.
0: Ah, okay, Robin, and car- that. Carnal fool was another one. Oh, all right. So I've been doing Paul all my life, and I've always thought I've been doing the wrong thing. Why have I done this piece of idiocy? And now I find I'm right. You're so. right. Um, so they pursue him, don't they? Yeah. Um, he, re- he recants, and yet they still keep pushing. Yes,
1: that does show a a level of malevolence towards him because he, uh, as you know, signs six recantations each more abject than the last and the last two in the knowledge that he would be burned anyway. But you've got this feeling that this is is a man who really, really matters. Mm. He's actually the highest, the the most prominent prize for the Counter-Reformation in the whole of the 16th century. So you've got an archbishop who had uh, gone off the rails, who had been primate of all England, who had led England into the worst sort of wickedness. You really got to force this man mm. to grovel. And they did, and they did, and they did. Uh, and it looked as if it was going to work. And the, 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 do we get on to the great dramatic last story now? But actually, for you, if you might, the mind, so why does he recant? And then, yeah. Well, uh, I, I think a mixture of things, there is this basic feeling that God had put the monarch there And if God had made a decision, put Mary there, well, what do you do with that? Do you obey? Do you resist? Ponent had one answer. I think Cranmer had another. There is the effect of imprisonment, Mm. Uh, solitary confinement. Uh, Cat and mouse, he was released into the extremely swish environment of Christchurch under house arrest, dining at high table for a bit, then back to prison. Mm. And then with a very interesting jailer, a man called Nicholas Woodson, who I, I didn't really appreciate how important he was when I was writing the book. He is a very interesting Oxford figure, who uh, lived in uh, a great mansion, which is where Oxford Station is now. Oh, okay, it, it had been an Augustinian priory. He was also churchwarden in the parish of St Thomas, but also much more a university administrator. Uh, very involved in the foundation of the ultra-Catholic St. John's College. So this is Nicholas Woodson, not the simple, humble jailer who was seen to work his magic on the the prisoner, but a a very subtle operator being backed by high authority, working on Cranmer psychologically. And, and, and forcing him. There's a mm. the terrible uh, narrative of this, actually from a Catholic point of view, breaking down Cranmer's spirit, mm. forcing him back towards Mother Church. Mm. So it, it's a classic um, mm. story of, of prison
0: pressure, which right. the 21st century would understand very right. well. And you, you get this recantation, and it, it's a big public event, isn't it? It's a, you know, everybody's watching, um, yeah. and there's a, it's published, and yet... They make a mistake because I think uh, it's signed by, you know, some. um, Well, either way, it's received with mockery rather than has the impact they wish.
1: No, it's even more interesting than that because this is one of the first great occasions of public print because Mm. uh, they distribute the the recantations to the crowd, so they've all got a copy.
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, extraordinary uh, piece of technology. Uh, But the trouble was that Cranmer, who was then forced to read it, altered the last piece all to the last few sentences, Mm -hmm. which had said that he rejected his Protestant writings and instead said he rejected his recantations. He caused utter consternation in the church. Um, Absolute confusion broke out. So he's hustled out of the church. Mm -hmm. And there's an account of a Spanish friar walking along with him, muttering in fury and agitation, you didn't say it, you didn't say it. Right. Uh, And then he's off to the the bundle of uh, wood in uh, Broad Street and the
0: fire so i was i was walking down broad street the other day and i passed one of the you know vast numbers of groups of tourists and i heard um uh the tour guide there saying this unworthy hand just as i passed yeah it is it's an extraordinary story on a personal level and it's an extraordinarily important event for the future of protestantism in england isn't it completely because if he had not repented,
1: uh, if he had repented and become a Catholic once more, it would have been the biggest prize that the Catholic Church gained during the 16th century. Mm. Instead of which, he he reigned on their fate. Mm. He completely ruined the occasion and gave Protestants hope because Protestants were totally demoralized by the failure of Queen Jane mm. and the the, the the taint that they were traitors to God's choice of queen. Mm. Now there was a a figure to focus on alongside it has to be said two earlier bishops latimer and ridley Mm. whose fates had been much more straightforward Mm. they had never wavered but now this greatest prize had been won back for the protestant reformation Mm.
0: So that's the the story of his life, as it were. A couple more questions: What would he have thought of Anglicanism? Do you think we may have covered this? But
1: Anglicanism? Oh no, I don't. I don't think we have really, because Anglicanism, in its nineteenth century creation, and it's an only a nineteenth century word really, uh, was is a sweetly reasonable middle ground via media, middle way between Rome and Geneva, you might mm. say, um, Rome and a real Protestant Reformation. Cranmer wouldn't not have understood that Mm. because how can you have a middle way between truth and antichrist you can't Uh, so he wouldn't accept middle way if there had been a middle way he would have meant the compromise between the Lutheran reformation and the reformed reformation he deplored that there was a split and would have loved to have been a mediator there but nothing in the Anglican way at all and the respect for history in Anglicanism the love of choral music he Mm. showed no signs of that at all so I- in no way was he an Anglican, except that he produced this extraordinary liturgy, which could be used as if it were the book of such a church. And it has been used in such a way uh, ever since.
0: Yeah, and a very beautiful bit of uh, a piece of work it is. Isn't it, it? And wonderful.
1: Yeah. Uh, he had a gift for language that lasts. Mm. And he's, not, he's not a man who made jokes,
0: Right, not a man got who many laughs on the guy. No,
1: right? no, I, I I got very few jokes in my joke <laughs> card in my index. Right, but uh, a man who had an instinct for the words which you can say again and again without them sounding banal or dull or mm. boring. That's a, a unique gift and a completely, mm. of course, accidental gift. That's not why Henry the Eighth appointed him Archbishop of Canterbury, but he just had it, and and could use it to gather up the many attempts at English translation of the liturgy, which had already existed, mm. and turn them into uh, a single... welding them, if you like, into a single book, mm. uh, the Book of Common Prayer.
0: And it, just, despite a few revisions, that it survives it know, does, all the way through the yeah, core of it,
1: so. it, it was. Tweaked in a, a, a slightly Catholic direction mm. in 1662, uh, and you can see them being a bit embarrassed by this, and right. a bit embarrassed by yeah. that, and, and changing them. I mean, the, the most famous one is that uh, Cranmer had said, "What? Well, well, what happens to the leftover bread and wine at the end of communion? Well, the, cur- the curate shall have it to his own use." Is right. Cranmer's direction, and that lasted up to 1662 when it was taken out, because what that means, of course, is that this bread and wine, having been consecrated, Uh, is just bread and wine still. And the high church Anglicans of 1662 didn't like that. But by and large, it is Cranmer's text, Cranmer's words. uh, And they've been an extraordinary vehicle of English language. Mm. Because far more actually than Shakespeare or the Bible, these are the words which people actually said. Uh, And the uh, Anglican service is, uh, is a dialogue, a drama, involving the whole congregation. So... Uh, and, and while most of the population went to Church of England churches, which is basically 1800 mm. and before that, then that was the language of the people. Mm. And it, it, it structured the way we speak English.
0: The last question and sum up, cram for me if you can in right. words of one syllable, um, what, what are we left with at the end of it?
1: Well, he was the still centre of a, a turbulent reformation. Without him, it would have floundered after Thomas Cromwell's death it didn't. Instead, it expanded. He did create a workable form of worship, which curiously satisfied the majority of those worshipping up to the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And he left a standard for prose, which uh, he's there with the giants, he's there with the creators of uh, William Tyndall, the Bible, and uh, the creators of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. They are artists, Mm. in a language which has accidentally become a world language. Mm. But even at the time, the 16th century is a time when languages really sort of coagulate, French, German, it's, it's printing, it's the influence of humanist scholarship, new words appeared, and you need controls on that process, you need exponents of it, and he's one of the big ones.
0: Okay, thank you, that's very good. Anything else I should have asked you about Thomas Graham that I did not?
1: Well, I think we went over everything, in the box.
0: We Excellent. Got the box. All right, thank you very much. Pleasure. I really appreciate it. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Thank you.